This podcast is supported by VPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Australia's population is projected to reach 30 million people between 2029 and 2033, adding pressure to the quality and delivery of services for the community. Our guest today is Chief Tech Officer James Vincent of global digital tech and data services firm NCS Next. We'll be speaking with James today about how government needs to adopt more smart city technology to cope with the scale and expansion of the smart city technology and the solutions that government could adopt to improve citizen services amid a rapidly growing urban population. Think smart meters, sensor technology and AI in buildings and the way in which this would reduce our environmental footprint. Welcome to the show, James. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now, James, this is we're not going to go easy on it today. We're, we're not just massive uh, smart city supporters. We, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable with the idea, but there are a few concerns with that and we'll draw those out with you today. What drew you to technology? It's something I've always had a natural affinity for, Peter. You know, I think even going back to when I was growing up and, you know, computers in schools and in homes first became a thing, I always found myself naturally quite uh, inquisitive and naturally quite capable when it came to these things. So for me, you know, as I've gone through my career, I've always found technology as a means by which I can achieve outcomes, you know, so adding some kind of value, achieving a business outcome or an end user or end consumer outcome. And ultimately, it's just a mechanism by which I found myself able to help people and make a contribution. So for me, that fascination has always been there and it's constantly evolving and there's always new energy in the industry. And can you just give our listeners a really brief description of what your role is and about the company itself? Yeah, sure. So NCS is a global technology services organisation. We're actually headquartered out of Singapore. But here in Australia, we're about 2,000 people strong now, so we're a reasonably sizable operation. And we do technology solutions across cloud data and digital. So, you know, things like mobile application development, large-scale data platforms for analytics and insight, as well as large-scale cloud adoption. And then my role as the Chief Technology Officer, sorry, within all of that, is really to make sure that the services and solutions that we're bringing to market across the industries that we play in. So this is the likes of finance, telecommunication, utilities, healthcare, government, um, that they're being effective and we're actually meeting the market demand and helping our clients uh, create impact with the solutions that they're delivering as well. Mm. Now, James, the the concept of smart cities has, has been around for a little while, but it seems that there's certain trends coming together to support the adoption of smart city technology. Can you describe some of these trends that are favourable? Yeah, very much so. And I think it really um, echoing some of the things that Jess opened with, you know, the biggest trend would really have to be the drive towards increased urbanisation. And this is a global phenomenon. You know, this is not something that's unique to our situation here in Australia. We're seeing this around the world where it's not just the fact that population is growing, it's the fact that increasingly that population is moving towards urban centres. You know, I think the projections are that, you know, currently about 50% of the global population is in urban centres and by 2050, it'll be about two thirds of the world's population. So what that does is it obviously puts increasing demand on the existing systems and existing platforms as well. So along with that, there's obviously an increasing awareness of environmental impact and sustainability. 
And this is where you see things such as the UN Sustainable Development Goals really becoming a framework now by which a lot of uh, communities and governments are starting to focus on how they can actually have impact. And then I think for me personally, the overlay that I would put on all of that as well, the third dimension is really just the changing technology, you know, the rapid pace at which technology is improving, the accessibility of solutions that we can actually bring to bear in market today, you know, have never been so effective um, is what they are now. So, you know, really those three things coming together, I think, is what is driving the focus and effectiveness of smart cities. And James, just a, a thought, which which cities or which countries in particular are you seeing, I guess, leading the way in this space? Singapore always comes to mind um, for me personally, but is, is are there any other examples? There are lots. You know, I think it's improving around the world. Singapore really is the leading light because in many ways, Singapore has moved past this notion of experimentation and concept into really, really large scale adoption. And they're doing it across so many different areas of smart city technology as well. You know, I think one of the things that Singapore has that's very advantageous is not just a spirit of innovation, but it's got a very simplified single layer of government as well. So it makes it really easy when government makes a decision that it wants to launch into something like a public-private partnership and it wants to do something effective in industry, that it can really just make that happen. It has the mechanisms available to enable its vision. I think if we look to other parts of the world as well, you know, there's some really interesting things happening out of Barcelona. I think Barcelona is often cited as much of the technology aspect um, but also the community engagement. And I think one of the things that Barcelona has really highlighted is the importance of reaching out to the community and giving the community a role in smart city enablement. You know, they have a very open data platform. You know, you or I as citizens um, in Barcelona can register on that platform. We can see all the data and information that's collected about us and about our movements and how that's used and actually have participation in the system. And then there's some other really good examples, you know, more so in areas of Northern Europe where things like smart grid enablement. So, you know, this shift from um, energy being one of end consumers to what we call prosumers, you know, so our household could be producing electricity and energy and contributing that back to the grid. You know, really fantastic things happening out of that part of the world. So it is a bit of a global phenomenon, but there are definitely parts of the world that I think are really leading the way. Well, James, we're very big admirers of Singapore on the podcast. But uh, what what's wrong with the present operating systems um, that they need to be supplemented by smart city technologies? I think there's a couple of things, really, Peter. You know, one is you just look at the era in which they were designed. You know, they really weren't designed for this sort of scale. And so the increasing load and demand that's being put on our systems, you know, whether they be transport or energy creation and transmission, is creating ever-increasing challenges as our population grows. And then I think the other one is we really live in a very connected world today. And I think enabling a lot of the things that we want to do at a smart city level requires a degree of connectivity. And again, those systems just weren't designed with that level of connectivity in mind. So it's a bit of a challenge to, to retrofit or to you know enable the sort of technology vision we want with the existing operating systems that are in place. Just jumping into talking about VR simulation, I mean, this is a, a concept that was discussed many years ago, and I think um, it seemed very futuristic even five years ago, 10 years ago. 
Um, now it's commonplace in a lot of projects. Um, and, and look, it, it obviously makes real world spaces easier to navigate prior to construction and so forth. What are your thoughts around VR and can you give any other examples of how it's, how it's used in the smart city space? VR, I think, is really exciting. You know, I think it's a fantastic visual enabler and immersive enabler to being able to get a sense of what a built space could actually look like. You know, and it, it's funny, like if you go back in industry and you look at the notion of how did we convey to the community a sense of what we were planning and what was going to be built, you know, we can, sure, we can do sketches or, you know, we can look at architectural diagrams or submissions to council or whatever they may be. But, you know, as, as you would both know, right, the general public are not trained to interpret architectural diagrams. So we tend to rely a bit on things like an artist impression. But if you can take that one step further and you can actually create an immersive three-dimensional space, you know, you can put your headset on and you can actually walk through an environment. It unlocks all sorts of really cool opportunities and possibilities. And so one of the things that we're really seeing enablement in this area is the ability to look at different approaches and look at different models and do experimentation in a virtual reality representation. One of the really cool use cases that we had for this is we prototyped the development of a new train station, a new, new train platform. And the idea was that we really wanted to look at how we could optimize things like signage to improve things like accessibility for people in that environment. And all of a sudden, what you find is that you can actually do this in virtual reality land really cheaply and really effectively. You know, you can get people to walk through different models, different scenarios, different setups. You can look at things like what happens if I introduce a crowd into this environment? What if I create all this ambient noise? Maybe there's announcements coming over the PA system. There might be trains coming in and out. And you can actually create a real world environment in a very, very immersive way in virtual reality. And then if you contrast that to the way that historically those sorts of things have been done, you know, we would literally take a, a warehouse space and build a physical replica of a train station and try to do a bit of a walkthrough of that and look at maybe we can move some of the signage around it. It's just clunky. It's expensive. It's time consuming. And I think if we get really creative about the use of virtual reality, there are so many things we can do in the planning process before we enter a building stage to optimize outcomes. So to me, it's a really great emerging field and something that I think needs a lot more creative energy and insight applied to it. And, and James, obviously you've experienced that VR um, experience. How close did you feel it was to reality? I think at first, you know, it takes a little bit of um, reorienting, but that happens very, very quickly. And I think that notion of being able to set up the ambience and try to recreate that sort of real world feel um, to me, it feels much more natural than creating a, a contrived scenario where you're trying to get people to walk through an artificial environment because uh, really it's so abstracted from the real world experience, right? It, it's sort of hard to focus on the outcome you're aiming to achieve. I think the opportunities in that space, particularly for public spaces, um, is enormous. As you say, I mean, trying to replicate public spaces, particularly big, um, vast public spaces, um, is obviously cost prohibitive and really just inefficient to be building a replica. Yeah. Um, so I think there are huge opportunities there. Uh, and Jess, I also like, and James, the sort of the the gaming aspect to it, um, that you can try all sorts of different scenarios for movement systems and you can really test and tweak the, the design. Am I... Are you thinking about our, our SimCity 
podcast that we did a couple of years ago, Pete. Yeah, we did, uh, James, a couple of few years ago. We interviewed the uh, lead designer on SimCity 2, and um, there was a lot of experimentation with that. But it, is, it must be so much, once you've got the system, the design basically there, you can play around with it quite a bit. Absolutely true. You know, and it's a field where the technology is constantly evolving as well. You know, one of the things that we're increasingly experimenting with is what we call geospatial scenario modeling. And so this is something where you might take, uh, say, you know, a part of a city or, you know, an urban environment and look at optimization of things like traffic flow, right? You might want to run different scenarios to say, you know, how could we better respond to emergency events that happen within this space? You know, what if we blocked off certain streets under different circumstances? And you can actually do all of that inside the computer. And so you can start to look at these different scenarios and optimize for the sorts of outcomes that you want. And you can do it all in a simulated space. And I think just having that optionality and using it to inform the decisions that we make is a really powerful thing. And it's something that we're seeing as a real growth area. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. I wanted to ask about the digital twin. I feel like this is one of the most overused terms in in our industry. No, that, that, at the that's moment. sustainability, Jess. <laughs> digital twin. What is it, and and how does it relate to this topic? Digital twin. You're right. I mean, it's a very overloaded term. It means different things to different people. Um, it's related to this topic in the sense that I think when we look at smart cities and when we look at planning in general. You know, we need to be leveraging technology wherever we can. And the smart city concept lends itself to not just things that are built physically on the ground, but also to things such as larger scale utility um, and transportation uh, considerations as well. And this is where we're seeing uh, the rise of what's commonly been termed now operational twins, right? So really this digital twin or operational twin, in many ways, it's just a computer representation or a computer model of any physical asset, right? But the obvious advantage is once that is computerized, you can then do things like those visual 3D representations. You can start to explore the machine learning and the AI. This is where things like predictive maintenance become really effective in the management of assets. And, you know, we can also start to use that in a larger scale to look at, you know, scenario modeling and what if analysis. Right. So what if a system failed? How could we compensate for that? How could we recover in an emergency scenario? All those sorts of things. And they become really, really useful um, pieces of information and insight when we look at how we might plan for optimization or future investment. Mm. And James, I suppose you know the, the infrastructure of cities, the the cables, the the pipes, the um the the cables, everything the, the, having that tested or having a digital twin as you say the maintenance of that the sort of the boring uh, essential stuff that you've got to do to maintain vibrant cities the smart cities or smart technology can really help with that can you sort of give any examples of that sort of thing 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're doing a lot of interesting work at the moment, uh, particularly in water. You know, I think that there's a lot of focus on energy when we talk about starting to look at how do we optimize outcomes in the safer and reliable provision of water. So you imagine, uh, you know, technologies like being able to detect leaks in pipe through different forms of inspection, right? So you could maybe float a visual inspection device down a pipe and look for things that are anomalous. But you can also do really cool things like um, measure that acoustically. So you might pulse a sound wave through an underground pipe and determine whether or not the response you're getting back is as you would expect for those materials and those properties. So there's all sorts of really imaginative and creative things being done on a global scale. Along with that, you know, I mentioned before this notion of predictive maintenance, and this becomes really important, particularly in regional parts of our state and Victoria. And you know, again, looking around the world, you know, not every system that gets implemented um, has someone nearby who can readily maintain it and look after it or, you know, repair it should it break down. And so being able to predict when failures are going to occur in something like a pumping station, maybe in a sewage treatment plant, it enables us to not just be more cost effective in the way that we actually manage that infrastructure asset, but it's also having a really great contribution to things like health and safety because we're not sending people out at three o'clock in the morning to deal with large, heavy equipment and, you know, undertake maintenance in environments that may not be safe. But I guess you're also providing a, a better environment for your residents because they're not, you know, being put in a situation where they don't have power for 12 hours or something like that. You know, you think back to back in our, our childhoods where power would go out quite regularly and um, it wasn't uncommon to be walking around with a candle or something like that for a couple of hours until the power came back on. So I think it, as you say, it, it provides benefits for everyone, but also provides benefits for our residents in particular. I was just going to ask as well um, around how we can use these sort of um, ideas and concepts to actually design um, better new towns or even urban renewal projects. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think in many ways this comes down to the availability of data and then the ability to actually gain insight from that data that we're gathering. You know, So all of the technology that's deployed in the real world on the ground, what it really should be doing ultimately is leading to those better outcomes for all of us as citizens, like you mentioned, You know, not having to walk around in the dark looking for candles. So when we're planning for new environments, we can be informed by what we're seeing, we can use data far more effectively, and we can also facilitate the deployment of this new technology. I think one of the really interesting challenges though, when you look at the notion of smart cities and some of the things that we celebrate and you know, the really effective modern precincts is many of them do tend to be those greenfields areas where we're going in and you've got a bit of a clean slate. So you can design with these technological outcomes in mind. You know, You can look at things like the underground supply of power and utilities, you can look at the urban environment and designing for a really, you know, engaging space for people, you know, to live and to work in, uh, looking at things like autonomous vehicles and how they could be facilitated. But the real challenges, and I think the, the really interesting one that we've got to face into tackling if we're going to scale this technology and be more effective with it, is how do we retrofit that into existing environments as well? So I think really it comes down to gathering data, being able to use that data to make more effective decisions, being able to experiment ahead of build phases, and then being able to inform ourselves as to how to best implement the technology and get the right outcomes. 
Yeah, all, all good points, James. And, and uh, employing, uh, utilising the technology and putting it into new systems depends on the existing regulatory environment catering for this technology. And uh, is there a sort of a catch-up or can we have the regulations so that they can anticipate these sort of new technological breakthroughs, James? Any thoughts? Yeah, look, it's a complex field, you know, I think there are so many aspects to regulation when when we look at smart city development, you know, regulatory things around the way in which we plan, um, you know, the way in which we enable and unlock capability. You know, if I look at things like transportation, you know, there's a lot of things we need to do around improving infrastructure and there's some regulatory considerations around that stuff as well. And so I think the situation as I see it here in Australia is, not so much that there's a regulatory impediment to action, it's probably more so that there's just inconsistency in the regulation and perhaps a few points of discontinuity. And then I think as we look at some of the more broader aspects of you know, data collection and data management and regulation around that, as well as it relates to privacy and personally identifiable information, you know, there's some good regulatory frameworks, but again, perhaps not extended into these use cases so, you know, I think it's something to watch and something to engage with governing bodies around, but not necessarily something to fear in terms of our ability to move forward. James, there's concern that this technology could be used to ensure compliance with whatever authorities might be seeking to promote. Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, I definitely do. You know, and I think this is a topic that really does need to be explored and it does need to be discussed. So there's absolutely no doubt that, some aspects of this technology and to me you know we're talking about the areas in particular that play into public safety um so things like you know cctv and the utilization of that video footage you know i think the potential and the ability to misuse that technology is is very real particularly if we zoom out to a global scale you know so there are definitely examples um, around the world where things like cctv have been used to you know, identify people that may be not aligned, you know, with, with government intent and policy. But, you know, I think the the danger here is that we focus on the technology and we don't focus on the governance conversation that we need to have. And I think really, you know, situations where we see this sort of, you know, perhaps abusive capability, I mean, they're going to arise regardless of what state the technology is in, right? We've, we've always seen this sort of pattern of behaviour in society, um, you know, over recent years. And I think to me, the unfortunate side effect is that it can create fear in the community and it can actually hamper adoption. You know, so there's plenty of things that we could do that would be really effective uses of CCTV that are in the interest of public safety. You know, so by way of example, through things like the global pandemic, if we want to look at overcrowding in certain areas and we want to understand why that crowding is occurring and is that a dangerous situation, you know, it's very easy for us to count density and count bodies without caring at all about the identification of the individuals involved. So in many ways, this comes down to what is the intentional use of the technology? What sort of models are we training and for what purpose? You know, so I think the potential is always there, but this is where I think community engagement in those use cases is just so important. James, I'm terrified of, you know, geofencing and things like that. Um being used to oh well stop movement and um and just the and just the all seeing um what, what are you what are you up to that you're worried about Pete? Well I, I, well <laughs> well 
Jess, I, I like my liberty. Um, and uh, but you don't know. A lot of people don't know if they're crossing the you know into a grey area. So, um, geofencing. Uh, am I am I right to be sort of worried about that, James? Or what or has he just been watching too much Blade Runner? <laughs> I think it's always right to be concerned. I, I don't know about worried, but I think as citizens we should always be vigilant, right? And we should always be paying attention. You know, I, I think one of the things that's unfolding at the moment is, you know, this debate around 15-minute cities. And I, I think some of the aspects and some of the aspirations of this, you know, are really fantastic in terms of, you know, urban environments that are really accessible for people and we can do things locally and we can look at, you know, more effective modes of transportation around our local area, such as making it friendly to cycling and walking. But when we extend that to concepts such as wanting to find people who leave that geographic area too frequently, or maybe they take too many car trips outside their designated area, I think that sort of thing is deeply concerning. And that's the sort of thing that we really do need to have, you know, significant public debate around that. So yes, again, the potential is there and the technology can be used that way. But so many of these things come down to, you know, a cultural awareness and a cultural understanding of our values and, you know, what's important to us as a society. And, and so, comes back to governance again as well. Well, Absolutely. Jess, I think James is uh, on Team Pete, not Team Jess on this topic. Uh, he, I think he understands um, well, that people... What are, what are you both up to? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I'm talking James is a very good citizen, but I, I'm less good. Now, environmental benefits, James, what... Are, Let's let's talk about uh, what smart cities can do with environmental benefits. Yeah, obviously an incredibly important topic, Peter. You know, there are so many levels in which we can improve the environmental footprint of cities through the use of smart technology. You know, I think one of the really simple ones is if we just look at our urban environment, you know, when we're monitoring for things such as air quality, obviously anything we measure, we can start to understand and we can start to take action around. So I think even just from a public health aspect, you know, monitoring that sort of thing, being aware of it and starting to put in place measures around improving things such as air quality, really important. But if I start to look at this across, you know, think of a simple user journey of like what you may do on a daily basis, right? So, you know, the energy that we consume in our office buildings and in our homes, you know, if we can start to optimize the use of that energy, we can obviously reduce the amount of consumption Reducing consumption is always a really good thing from an environmental impact perspective. So we're doing work at the moment around building management systems where we're looking at optimising the HVAC, the heating, ventilation and air conditioning systems. We're looking at optimising lighting utilisation as well to reduce the consumption within buildings. And you know, as we scale up that urban density and that population, that becomes increasingly important. Transportation is another area where there's a lot of efficiencies to be gained. And again, anytime you're talking about a more efficient system, it's not just more cost effective, um, but it's also going to reduce its environmental impact as well. So there are definitely a lot of areas where we can look at smart technology. I think, you know, one of the really, really engaging areas is in energy, is in this notion of smart grids and being able to invest more deeply in the localized production of electricity. You know, and again, this idea that we can, distribute the creation of electricity and not rely so much on centralized sources. Those distributed energy uh, production capabilities tend to be renewables. They tend to be wind and solar. And again, reducing the overall demand on non-renewable energy is a good thing. 
And what are the vulnerabilities of the system? Yeah, it's a really good question, right? And I think what this really comes down to is this notion that we need to increase the level of connectedness in our systems, right? So it's pretty much impossible to bring data into something like a cloud environment for analytics and insight and uh, machine learning modeling without having that degree of connectivity to enable that. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier that a lot of our existing assets were not really designed with that level of connectivity in mind. So there is definitely a concern around how we enable that and how we do that connectedness. So anytime we look at connecting systems into a network, we need to look at how we protect those systems from an access control and governance perspective. We need to look at how we protect that data, whether it be in transit or whether it be in storage as well. And so there's a lot of things we can do. I think those patterns are very, very well known, particularly when we look at the use of uh, you know, public cloud uh, type capability for enablement of uh, you know, the rapid adoption of modern technology. There's really great tooling. There's really great processes and standards that we have available that we can leverage for that. But we can also be really intelligent about what we unlock and enable as well. You know, so maybe in our first phase, we don't look at enabling command and control of some of the systems that we're trying to understand. We just look at how we can gather data in a read-only type format. And, and James, uh, an issue with technology, um, the uh, avoiding obsolescence in systems. Um, you know, you think about where we've come in the last 25 years in terms of software or the cloud and things like that. And no doubt the progress is going to be continued, um, maybe not the same pace, but how do we avoid that obsolescence in systems? There's a couple of things that we can do around obsolescence, but I think the first one is to acknowledge that in some ways you can't avoid it, right? I mean, it's the nature of technology that it evolves over time. And so there's always going to be new and different ways of uh, tackling problems. There's always going to be new and better technology. One of the big things we've really learned with the rapid evolution of technology is that you need to design with that obsolescence in mind. And so what you can do is you can make your systems far more modular and far more granular. And what that means is, is that rather than having to do massive technology refresh, maybe every 10 or 12 years, you can do smaller point-by-point uh, -point refresh on a technology basis. So you can look at which components of a system are becoming obsolete and how can we actually replace and modernize those at lower cost. You know, we can retrofit a lot of modern technology um, and work in parallel with existing systems as well. You know, when we look at things like those large-scale utility assets, you know, I know when IoT first came in and became a big thing, there was a lot of concern from those who were using existing operational technology platforms that those investments would be made obsolete. And what we found is that that's not actually the case, that we can deploy the IoT alongside the existing operational technology and use the two together to, to gain much greater insight. So there's that notion of being very modular and being very mindful about how we deploy the technology. And then I think the other aspect of it is we need to push a lot more towards open standards as well. I think one of the things that makes technology expensive to maintain and replace over the long term is too much reliance on proprietary systems, which are very, very challenging to modify and to update. And I think if we can push increasingly towards open standards, we have much greater flexibility about what our optionality is and maybe how extensible those systems become as well. We've obviously spoken about the efficiencies that come from these systems, um, but you've also just mentioned there that, you know, the, there's a price to pay in actually rolling out this, this kind of technology. 
What sort of returns can investors expect, whether they be authorities or municipalities, for example? Or is it a case that given the advance in technologies that these agencies can't really afford to wait? It's a complex and multidimensional thing. You know, when we start to look at return on investment for technology, um, I think there are a couple of areas as they relate to smart cities where those returns are really quite obvious and evident. And there are some that are just uh, more aspirational in nature. And, you know, to your point about waiting, right, there is a definite opportunity cost as well if we don't do anything and we just simply wait and see what the rest of the world's doing or our systems actually start to, you know, erode or break down or fail. You know, so the ones that are more obvious around that return investment, uh, you know, I mentioned things such as optimising building management systems so that we can get uh, much more efficiency uh, out of our existing buildings as well as our new and greenfields deployments. And so anytime you're optimizing efficiency, you're reducing cost, right? Or you should be reducing cost uh, commensurate with that. And so that's something that's really measurable and you can put a definite time frame on return on investment around the utilization of technology and those sorts of scenarios. But I think some of the other aspects, you know, that come into this as they relate to cost, more so relate to perhaps cost avoidance. So, you know, the predictive maintenance scenarios that we mentioned earlier, are an area where we can avoid cost as opposed to maybe get a a very clear and definite return on investment. Um, But then we've got to look at the slightly less tangible aspects of return on investment. So these are things like the improved health and safety that I discussed earlier, um, but also just the notion that ultimately we're trying to do this to improve outcomes for citizens. And so what value do we place on that as a society? And is that something that we see worthwhile investing in, even if it doesn't necessarily have a very immediately measurable return on that investment? But I think long-term, if you sort of really zoom out and take a bigger picture view on this, if the outcome that we get through the investment in smart cities is that we have more engaging urban spaces, we have a happier and more engaged society That looks like the sort of place that we want to encourage investment, the businesses want to establish themselves in. We handle scale better. We increase population more effectively. We become more competitive as a nation. Then ultimately, those things should play into things like GDP and actually make us more competitive at the national level. And so you could argue that the investments in smart city technology are ultimately going to have a return on investment at that national level. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. James, the technocrats in lab coats brought us the modernist push. I'm thinking about the 1960s and maybe early 70s. And that that pictures of uh, people walking around wearing glasses with IBM computer tapes in the background and designing new cities. And uh, they were about freeways, slum clearance, uh, modernist housing, alienating architecture. Is this smart cities just a return of technology, uh, insensitive technology to our city designs? I love this question, Peter. I think, you know, as a qualified engineer, I don't quite go back to the 60s and 70s with it, but I might've been at risk of becoming one of those technocrats in lab coats. So, you know, it's a really fun area to explore. And, you know, look, I think, you know, you guys have focused in previous episodes of your podcast around the preservation of 
of heritage and you know some of the identity of our cities and our urban spaces as well and particularly through that period you know some of the irreversible damage that might have been done but look i think one of the things that i would draw a parallel to is you know we do a lot of human-centered design and experience design in our organization and i think the thing that we're seeing is this real drive and push towards being very focused on the outcomes for the consumer of whatever it is that we're creating Right. So this could be a digital application that we're developing. I think we see this increasingly used in the provision of digital government services as well, where we're really conscious of putting the citizens and the consumers at the heart of whatever it is we're designing. You know, so I think that notion of that autocratic lens and we know what's good for you and we'll just make those determinations in isolation. I hope that's disappearing and, you know, and I believe that's fading. And I don't think the technology has to necessarily take us back to that place. If we use it in the right way to help us be more informed about the decisions we're making, you know, that sort of notion I mentioned earlier about doing things like the geospatial scenario modeling, these should be tools that help us get to an outcome that we're after. They shouldn't be necessarily dictating the way we treat any specific situation or problem. So I think there's always room for that human creativity. I think increasingly in digital parlance, we're very, very conscious of the human impact and putting humans at the center of everything we do. And so I think we've actually got a really bright future around this if we can learn how to leverage these tools and leverage these capabilities in the right way. I, I should say, James, jumping in, I love freeways, driving around listening to Kraftwerk, <laughs> uh, Autobahn. So not all of the, not all the technocrat things have been too bad, Jess, I don't think. I can just, just see you in your, in your Volvo Pete going down the freeway. Well, Jess, I used to have a Volvo for a very long time, but now it's a Ford Ranger, which I love. Oh, that's right. But we will talk about music when we get to podcast extra because I've got a surprise for Jess. Now, <laughs> I think you, I think you were going to ask something, Jess. Yeah, um, James. With these technologies that we've spoken about, how can they be used effectively in third world countries or those, um, I guess, cities with rapidly growing populations? And what are the benefits? It's not something that I personally have any immediate experience in, but, you know, if I apply my understanding of the technology to those sorts of environments, when you look at things like 5G technology, right, as an enabler of really broad reach, when you look at things like, you know, the smartphone uh, type, you know, mobility of, you know, compute, and the way that we can deploy that into those environments without having to invest in massive amounts of infrastructure, I think there's a really good opportunity there to be able to leapfrog a little bit and to accelerate outcomes. I guess my underlying concern when we look at those sorts of scenarios, though, is to make sure that we're not too deeply focused on the technology for its own sake. You know, I think those sort of communities obviously have a lot of needs, and it might be that focusing on the provision of things such as access to basic healthcare and education are far more important to focus on deeply as an outcome and remember that technology has a role to play in those things, but to not focus too deeply on technology for its own sake. The third world's got an incredible take-up adoption of technology, James. Uh, as you say, that leapfrogging. Can we just sort of explain that? I mean, the, as I understand that concept, a lot of the third world can copy what the West is doing and maybe avoid some of the uh, dumber design or technological solutions that we've had over the uh, over the last 30 or 50 years so they sort of ch gain from our knowledge and avoid 
some of that sort of legacy infrastructure. Is that sort of a bit clumsy or is that about right? No, I think it's a fair way of looking at it. You know, it's really this notion of experimentation, right? We all improve through trying ideas and experimenting, um, but obviously that experimentation has an investment cost as well. And so I think when you can move past a lot of those more clumsy attempts at implementation, you know, as you said, and really start to look at, well, what is world best practice and how can we actually implement this stuff effectively and cheaply, then that becomes, you know, really quite compelling so, you know, I think things like deploying IoT sensors into some of these environments where we can monitor things such as noise levels and air pollution and all that sort of stuff, and we can do that effectively and cheaply, start to build up models of how people are moving around in those environments and how we can optimise for outcomes. There's a lot of really cool things that smart city technology can do to help in that sort of environment. Absolutely. I think there's huge Huge opportunities in that space. And just, Jess, oh, that IoT has been mentioned, that's Internet of Things, right, James? Yes, absolutely. So effectively, you know, the connectedness of everything. Yeah. Sorry, Jess, I jumped in. No, no. Um, James, I wanted to ask you about science fiction and the future of cities. Do you have a favourite book or movie? Um, one that Pete quite often mentions is Blade Runner. Which, James, shamefully, Jess has not watched yet. <laughs> no, no, not, not the original or the second one. I keep <laughs> nagging her, but she just never finds the time. I, I've got all the time in the world at the moment, so I should put it on my list of um, of TV shows to uh, TV shows and movies to watch, Pete. And, and James, I want to jump in the, the, the back end of that question. Is the future our friend? So two separate questions there. Two separate questions. Jess, my advice is... Blade Runner, start with the original. Okay. You know, the, the, the really amazing thing about, I think, when that captured our imagination, you know, when it first came out, is this notion of AI that was undetectable and unrecognisable. It just, you know, it seems so extreme, right? So far-fetched. And, you know, aside from them walking around in quasi-human form, I think in many ways we're really starting to see that realisation of AI that is almost indetectable from human experience. But I think, you know, in this general area, you know, the science fiction thing, it's really easy to jump into the world of, you know, the, the Philip K. Dick and the William Gibsons. And, uh, you know, they're fun to explore and all of that, but they do tend to be a little bit dystopian in their view. Um, for me, I probably keep it a bit more lighthearted. You know, I when I grew up as a kid, like I just thought the Jetsons was the coolest thing ever, right? I, I used to watch this cartoon, they'd be flying around in their little, you know, flying cars, spaceships and living in the sky pad apartments and, you know, we, some of us have got robot vacuum cleaners in our homes now. They may not quite look like Rosie from the Jetsons, you know, but it's really engaging when you think about where that technology is taking us. And, you know, even down to, I, I love George Jetson's job, you know, he's this automated index operator, which effectively went to work every day and he just pushed the big red button, right? And so this notion that, you know, automation and AI was reaching this industrial scale and that being imagined back in the 60s, I think it was really cool. And so hopefully, Peter, if we can look through it that with that lens of, you know, is the future our friend? Well, you know, that seemed like a pretty friendly and engaging environment to me. So hopefully we go down that path and less down the Blade Runner path. Oh, well, well, Jess, there you go. James has said you've got to watch these movies and she, he's given you the order. Uh, one, uh, just one more Blade Runner question. James, first one or second one, which was the better in your opinion in in five minutes or less? Oh, I can. I oh, no, just joking about the five minutes. But what do you think, the first or second? For me, for me, it was the first. I, I just found the first more engaging. Um, 
you know, but maybe that's just because it was also more familiar as well. So I've got I've got four weeks before my my second baby is due, James, and oh, wow. um, I promise I will I will sit down and I will watch both of these movies and I will report back well, at the next podcast. Page. Well, just grab a couple of <laughs> bottles of red when you're watching it and a, and a pack of fags. You'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, podcast extra, James. So something sure. uh, or podcast extra or culture corner we call this something that you've been reading watching doing listening to of late that might be of interest to our listeners for me i consciously try to get away from the technical stuff uh, from time to time I, I like to read i've recently just finished reading a series by an author by the name of con eagledon who um, the series was the emperor series which was focused on julius caesar so it's a fictionalized telling of julius caesar's life and it's just really fascinating to look at, you know, this idea of how he grew up and the sort of things he encountered, you know, his journeys through Gaul and then, you know, even down into Egypt where he met Cleopatra and to really put it through that immersive telling of a fictional tale, I found really quite engaging. And then on another note, something completely different, um, recently taken on a project on trying to build an acoustic guitar. And wow, how, how would you even start that? Well, exactly right. I mean, I've got no practical training in any of this stuff whatsoever, and I don't know nothing about woodworking. Um, but I thought, you know, hey, here's a great idea. You know, I've been playing guitar for a while, and why not actually take on the challenge of building one? And uh, I'm making lots of mistakes, guys. I'm making so many mistakes. I'm learning heaps, and it's really good fun. And uh, I'm really hopeful that one day this thing's actually going to turn out and be playable. But I'm just totally enjoying the idea of getting back to something that's hands-on and practical and not necessarily too deeply focused on technology. Are there videos yeah. on YouTube that help with that kind of thing? <laughs> yes, there absolutely are. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing you do, right? And then you can get a little bit too caught up again in staring at your computer screen and trying yeah. to work out the optimal way to do it as opposed to just getting out there and, you know, breaking things and working. There you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I love that idea of getting back to craft. Um, yeah. Jess, your podcast extra? Um, yes, mine is a TV show this week because um, I've recommended a couple of books recently and um, TV show, as I said, I've been spending a lot of time lying on the couch and not doing too much, um, is Fisk. I don't know if you've seen it. It's with Kit- Kitty Flanagan on, no, um, what's it? What's on SBS. It so so she's a, a contract lawyer who's um, basically had a professional fall from grace and um, ends up at a... It's a fairly shabby suburban law firm, um, which is actually in North Melbourne, um, very close to me, and um, just the story of her life. And it's it's a comedy. It's it's it's, it's extremely funny. So I've been really enjoying that. What about you, Pete? Well, I've got two. Jess, I went to and uh, James. I don't know if you like poetry, but I went to a, po- a poetry lunch today, um, uh, and someone gave a great talk about Emily Bronte. And she's the author of Wuthering Heights. And have you read Wuthering Heights, Jess? No, okay. I haven't. Uh, James, have you read Wuthering Heights? Um, I'll happily say that my wife really loves this stuff. <laughs> I find it a bit challenging, to be honest, to get into. Oh, yeah. So you're very honest, James. You're very honest. So Pete, Pete's very highbrow when it comes to his recommendations. No, well, I'm going to get it on. <laughs> I'm going to get it on Audible, and I'm just going to start walking um, and listening to Wuthering Heights and hearing about. Uh, what's his name, Highcliffe or Hinchcliffe? No, Highcliffe, I think it is. And the other, Jess, talking about music, you'll be happy to know that there is now officially a planning exchange um, playlist on Spotify. Wow, th- this is going to be diverse. <laughs> and uh, 
And uh, so far, it's all my additions, James. So people who listen to it and don't know Jess hasn't done anything with it yet will <laughs> think she's a real uh, into a lot of let- electro music and uh, tech stuff. But um, one it's final thing I want to... Chalk and cheese, I think. <laughs> one final thing I want to talk to you about, James, is um, chat GPT very quickly. Um, I asked it to write a rap song about planning exchange and it produced one in like three minutes and I sent it to Jess and she really liked it. Maybe you could sing it when you get your guitar made for us. <laughs> I, I'd happily play guitar for you. I really don't know you guys want to hear me sing. That's that's not a good thing for anyone. Well, no. well, it doesn't need to be sung. It can be rapped. Well, well, <laughs> Very it's, different. Yeah, yeah, well, 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 and the other thing is uh, I was just going to have a bit of a complaint about chat GPT, James, and, and hear your thoughts because where I my council is trying to bring in a 30K speed limit across the municipality. So I, I asked ChatGPT, lazy as I am, to write me an objection. And it's told me speed limits are good to save lives. I, I can't write this for you. What you need to do, Peter, you need to change your approach and reverse <laughs> it. So you need to ask it the opposite argument where it'll give you all the information to support exactly why increasing speed limits or having dynamic speed limits is a really good thing for society. And so you just got to work out ways to sort of, you know, tweak your uh, command engineering there, mate. So that's, so a, that's great advice. And, uh, and you might be able to help me. I'm always machine. trying to chat up Siri too, uh, James, and she's ne- she just never responds that well to me. So <laughs> on, on that note, James, you've been a terrific guest. I've learned an awful lot, Jess. What, any thoughts, Jess? Absolutely. That's been really, really informative. Thanks, James. And, and, and thanks so much, James, for coming along to Planet Exchange. And I hope you've enjoyed our little podcast. Thank you both. It's been really good fun. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.